A note of warning. This podcast describes from the outset attacks which include violence and sexual assault. No intimate details are given, but the words and imagery may be affecting. Listener discretion is advised. It's the 3rd of January, 1983. We're in Leeds, in West Yorkshire, in the north of England, and a woman wonders if she's going to live or die. Two hours earlier, she'd been in her car, parked in the Leeds General Infirmary. A man had jumped in, pushed her to the passenger seat, and driven her to the canal where he had raped her. Now, this woman, a 26-year-old mother, has a bag over her head. Her hands are tied. The man drags her to the edge and throws her into the grimy waterway. It was freezing cold, she would later say in an interview. I just went under. Then the survival instinct took over. It was only the fact that she found a stone to stand stand on or something, a rock in the canal, that saved her from being drowned. So he obviously wasn't in the slightest bit worried about whether the victim lived or died. This is Anne Davis, the former head of crime analysis with the Metropolitan Police, who would study the attacker's pattern of assaults. The survivor went on to say, I got my foot on a ledge and managed to get my chin above water, freed my hands and took the bag off my face. When I looked up, he was standing watching me struggle in the water. The man calmly walks away to the victim's car, which he then drives back to the hospital, probably to get away in his own vehicle. As this survivor pulls herself to dry land and calls for help, she has no idea that the man who has just targeted her has struck before and will attack at will for years to come. In the future, he will be careful, seldom leaving fingerprints. Few of his victims will see his face. But there will be enough, just enough, to catch him using techniques which will be developed in the future. They will achieve justice, but it will be a close-run thing. He's not on the National DNA database. If he had committed a serious crime, you would expect him to be there. If the police had come at this from another direction, they might have missed him completely. Because during one of the rapes, he was listed as being in custody. So that would have excluded him. That's the scientist who helped develop the technique of geographic profiling. Absolutely key to this case to catch this, one of the most dangerous and devious predators in recent British criminal history. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from the people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more, or get in touch, just subscribe at robertsmurphy.substack.com. And please do rate and review our podcast. This episode is called 
Manhunt, Catching the Ghoul. This story begins in a bleak backdrop, just two years after Yorkshire had been terrorised by a murderer given the awful nickname The Ripper. The West Yorkshire force had suffered a national disgrace almost, under fire for the mistakes it had made catching Peter Sutcliffe, and now a new predator was on the scene, hunting in the very same cities. We just heard about the second rape in Leeds. Well, the first attack happened the month before, in December 1982, in Bradford, just 10 miles away. The attacker saw the woman getting into her car in a derelict car park, and this first attack bore all the hallmarks of the others which would follow. The offender, uh, what he would do is he would attack women who were getting into vehicles in a parking lot, and he would push them to the other side of the, their car, get behind the wheel, and then drive off and take them somewhere where he could um, rape them. For example, in a, the Yerdon Abandoned uh, Airport uh, was one of the first ones. So the victims often were driving cars with uh, a standard transmission. And he seemed to have trouble shifting gears. They commented on that. He also spoke with a Scottish accent. This is Dr. Kim Rosmo. I'll introduce you to him fully shortly. But for now, remember these last points. The Scottish accent and the problem with the gear stick. They are really important. I'm going to spend the next few minutes explaining the horrific series of attacks. It is tough listening, and I have removed all intimate details. But it gives you an idea what kind of monster police were up against. So, after the attack in Bradford in December 82, there was the rape where he pushed the mother into the canal. Now, detectives linked these and began a large operation within West Yorkshire. What struck detectives was how merciless this attacker was. Here's Anne Davis again. I'll explain her role soon, but here she gives a good oversight of how this attacker operated his modus operandi, or MO. Unusually brutal. Unusual MO in the, you know, using a car in this way, the victim's car in this way. And, the, the, you know, there's the several crime sites. And he was stealing from the victims, wasn't he, as well, and using their credit cards. The credit card, which was an access card, now part of uh, MasterCard, um, it was inside the glove box of an automobile that was stolen around one of the rape sites. And the police thought, hey, um, coincidence that this stolen car was so close to one of the rape sites, and they thought it might have be, been connected. Uh, what I remember was used for gasoline and alcohol purchases. So a stolen credit card was used for everyday items, petrol and a pen. It was also used to buy a video game called Scramble. The West Yorkshire force took these attacks seriously. They gained swabs from the victims, found hairs which could be the attackers. They knocked on more than 14,000 front doors. The first victim even managed to provide a photo fit. But detectives got nowhere and the attacker disappeared, free to carry on his life. It would be 15 months before he struck again. Now it was 1984. This time it was in Leicester, 100 miles south from the previous attacks. He abducted a woman as she arrived in a car park this time, he stabbed his victim in the rape. The following year, he assaulted a woman in Doncaster, a third police force's area, but South Yorkshire police didn't make any connection between this and the previous offences in Leicestershire and West Yorkshire. Then, 
there was a big gap. It would be eight years before the next assault in January 1993. This was in Leeds again. And a few months later, he struck again, this time for the first time in Nottingham. Again, a car park, again, a carjacking. This time, he asked his victim if she was religious. If so, she needed to start praying, he said. He drove his victim to a rural location. He raped her. He tied her in the boot and tried to set the car's petrol tank alight. In the Nottingham case, leaving the victim and trying to set fire to her car, again, you know, it's an indication that, you know, he didn't care if they lived or died. The fire didn't start and he ran off, but importantly, he left DNA at the scene. Forensic investigators found a semen stain. But whoever this attacker was, was not on the National DNA Register. Now, there are two dynamics at play which helped the attacker remain free. He was extremely clever and mistakes made by police. Firstly, him. He was forensically aware. Yes, police had DNA now, but in all these attacks, they didn't have any fingerprints. And if he was a convicted criminal, a fingerprint record would be far more likely than a DNA match back in 1993. And what did he look like? Well, some of his victims hadn't even seen him at all. One of the survivors did catch a quick glimpse of the man. He was white, in his 20s or 30s with long hair. She described him as having sunken eyes like a ghoul. A photofit image was produced of this spectral face. Check the website to see it. But mistakes by police may also seem, certainly with hindsight, terrifying. According to a later newspaper report, Nottinghamshire police investigating the last attack called up West Yorkshire to see if there were any links with the Leeds rapes. The officer was told to go away. And remember the first two attacks from Bradford in 82 and the Leeds Canal in 83. Well, by now, in the mid-1990s, West Yorkshire had managed to lose most, if not all, of the forensics from these two cases. The newspaper reports claimed that South Yorkshire police lost every single piece of evidence from the Doncaster attack in 85. So you had four forces, both West and South Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire, with a mixture of old and recent attacks, and none of the forces was working together. Then, in July 1995, a student was parking her car in the middle of Leeds when the attacker struck again with the same dreadful modus operandi. He abducted her, drove his victim to a rural spot. This time, he smeared glue in her eyes to conceal himself. He had a knife again, and he used it. He stabbed the seat all around the victim. You know, he did sort of that. And if you do use, you know, if you're violently stabbing like that, I mean, it does, I've seen it in other cases. The knife slips and the offender cuts her own hand. And that's obviously what happened there. Somehow, his terrified, blinded victim fought the attacker off and he fled before he could rape her. Again, the initial investigation did not cover itself with glory. The survivor was found tied up in her car by a passerby. The passerby made notes of what the victim said, but the police lost these. An ambulance driver also made notes, but destroyed them months later when detectives failed to ask for a statement. But crucially, the attacker cut himself in this assault, and he left a bloody fingerprint at the scene. Now, this was the first print to be found at any of the attacks. It wasn't a full print, just a partial one, 
but could that locate him? Detectives tried what's known as an automated fingerprint identification system search. But what the attacker had left behind wasn't complete enough to find a match. What about DNA from the blood? Six months after the student was attacked in Leeds, West Yorkshire forensic scientists would finally find a match between this last case and DNA in the semen from the Nottingham rape from three years earlier. At last, the West Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire forces started working together and Leicestershire joined in too. Taking the L, Y and N from their names and adding an X for cross-force collaboration, it spelt links. Operation Lynx, they called it. It would become Britain's biggest manhunt. But detectives were playing catch-up, working from these old, often poorly run initial inquiries where evidence had either been lost or not even taken. And the geographic spread across Yorkshire and the East Midlands counties was huge, more than 7,000 square kilometres. A dedicated team of 60 officers was set up. They would enter 34,000 names on their computer. It was an undertaking unseen before in British crime fighting. There would be big publicity campaigns on primetime television and in national newspapers. These might work, but Operation Lynx detectives were keen to try anything else to catch this man, including innovations in police science, and that's where the experts came in. In 1996, Anne Davis was working for the Metropolitan Police Service. After 30 incredibly varied years in police science, she found herself looking at predators, but she'd begun in the 1960s with plants. Joining the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Laboratory because I had a botany degree and it was in 1967 when cannabis was big and then, you know, it was identifying cannabis plants. But I also had a subsidiary in biochemistry. And as time went on, I got more involved. I was a biologist, so I got more involved in um, crimes against the person, particularly uh, uh, sexually motivated murder and rape. And we ended up in a laboratory running a sexual assault index for the police because we kept databases of our cases. You know, you could go back and look for similar cases with the same blood grouping results. So we set up a sexual assault index. This is pre-DNA. Got involved in linking of cases through the blood, you know, the blood groups that were secreted into semen, primarily ABO grouping. Mm-hmm. But also we had the victim statements. So gradually we developed an interest, discovered how the rapist behaviour was also very um, useful for linking cases. And we, we spoke to the people from the FBI Academy that did profiling, because part of profiling is, of course, identifying series and using offenders' behaviour. Now, while Anne Davis just used the word profiling, we need some caution about this. Now, you may have seen TV dramas with experts making assumptions about criminals through their behaviour. This was not Anne. We didn't call it profiling. We called it behavioural investigative analysis. Um, to distinguish us from Robbie Coltrane and Cracker and the, you know, the, the people that make inferences about childhood and psychology, which is basically not a lot of use to police trying to catch someone. And Anne was at her desk in New Scotland Yard when two detectives came to see her. And one day into my office came a couple of West Yorkshire police officers with a, a recent case where the girls, it was an attempted rape, in fact, but the girls' eyes had been super glued together you know, shut so she couldn't see her offender. And the, the, the police were absolutely horrified at the sort of, you know, the brutality that this indicated. And they had an old case from the early 1980s, which they thought might be linked. 
But all they had from that case was a victim statement. So I got to compare the two victim statements and to tell the police that, you know, in my opinion, their belief that these two cases were linked. It was the same offender. It was clear to Ann Davis that this man, this monster, operated at completely different depths of depravity, deviousness and calculation from a regular rapist, if there is such a thing. What could she pick out from these patterns to help? His way of working, his extreme methods to avoid being caught. And Davis asked questions to learn more. Was he worried about leaving fingerprints? Did he make reference to the police? Um, was he worried about being identified? Which he clearly was. Was he worried? Um, was he aware of risk? Which he clearly was, because he drove the victims. He didn't just attack them in the car park. He took them off somewhere where he could safely attack them for some time. Um, so you'd be looking at the degree of criminality, um, the degree of violence, um, any conversation and links, and also what sexual offences um, they actually perpetrate. I mean, though, of course, in the Leeds one, he, he, she fought him off, so that wasn't a possibility. You look for signs of fantasy, because if there's overt signs of fantasy, then you're thinking in terms of a serial offender. The way he used the car and drove it away and then drove back and the brutality, they themselves are strong linking characteristics, almost unique in the, in, the, in the database I had. Not that the database I had was huge. It was, what, 200 offenders? Mm. Most rapists are only violent, use enough violence or threats of violence to control the victim. And he was violent way over and above that. So there was a, a strong chance that he had you know, previous violent crimes in his criminal record. Um, he stole from the victims, which again is indicative of theft. So that gives you violent crime of some sort with theft. He was desperate not to, to leave fingerprints. I mean, the only thing he left in all those crimes they got was one partial fingerprint. And that's strongly indicative of someone with a previous criminal record. You know, and he was very aware of risk, the risk to himself, the risk of being identified. He wanted to get away safely. You know, he left the victims in no position to report, you know, to rush to complain about him or to, or to see which, which direction he was going in. And the car, the involvement of a car, the fact that he used a car, attacking women as they got into their cars and driving them away and raping them and then taking them back to somewhere not too far from where he'd attacked them in the first place, which was, of course, indicative of the fact his own car was parked nearby. Now, that's a very distinctive, if you like, modus operandi. So what was Anne's job? Her analysis of the offender was one thing, but detectives might have also reached the same conclusions. What could she add to help them track down the attacker? and looked at statistics. If someone's capable of attacks like these, what else is he capable of? And how can that help detectives catch him? Things that were really useful to the police, and it's why it was useful for them not to have a psychologist or somebody from the medical, you know, mental health professions doing this, in that they wanted prediction of um, characteristics that were useful for the police in looking for somebody. So a criminal record for theft would be a good starting point. It turned out that about 85% of the, the rapists on the database had previous criminal records. Um, so being able to um, tell the police whether you thought somebody had a criminal record and what sort of criminal record he might have would be very useful for the police in screening suspects in, 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 you know, in intelligence screens or searching police databases. And the other outcome from the research, is, which is really why I'm speaking to you today, was the sort of successful production of some models um, to give you some idea of what sort of criminal record the 
the, the uh, rapists might have. Because the interesting thing that a lot of them didn't have previous convictions for sexual crime, only 30% of them, which I suppose knowing the conviction rates for sexual crime isn't surprising. Yes. So instead of sexual crimes on their record, what kind of crimes might they have? Because they're described as generalists, aren't they? They're general criminals, sex attackers. Yes, they are. They have theft, drugs, burglary, violence, sort of, and violent criminals tend to be violent all the way through. It's a, it's a persistent characteristic, you know. Um, there's a certain pattern, although behaviour progresses and changes with experience, human behaviour is patterned. Um, so, you know, the, the, the guys that raped indoors, broke into someone's house and raped them, you know, were more likely to be burglars, have burglary in their antecedents. Those, were, you know, that were violent during the fence tended to have violent crimes in their antecedents. So to sum up, what kind of criminal was this ghoul, according to Anne's analysis? Unusual to be that brutal. In, in Stranger Rape is very unusual, that, that, that degree of violence. And brutality, yes, he's an extreme end of a continuum. But as officers left, Anne Davis had some words of warning for the detectives. Well, you tell the police, as a, as a sort of someone advising the police, you tell them that to be cautious about um, eyewitness evidence, particularly in a rape case where somebody's operating in the dark, where they're trying to keep their identity hidden. Um, often the victims don't get a very good look at them anyway. And people are very bad at really estimating age. And you also, you get, I mean, I've seen some really odd things. Like we had a series where the guy was clearly white and there was one old lady that was convinced that the guy that raped her was black. And I think this was her own prejudices that she felt in her own mind he had to be black and therefore she was quite convinced he was. So people are much, be much better at describing behavior than they are at um, giving descriptions. And also, you're very focused on, if somebody's waving a knife, you're focused on the knife, not the offender. And this attacker was waving a knife. But an image was starting to emerge. If the attacker wasn't on the National DNA database, if they had just a partial fingerprint, perhaps they should prioritise violent robbers in their criminal records. Thing was, the geographic spread was simply enormous. So Operation Lynx detectives turned to a new science which was being developed across the pond in Canada, geographic profiling. And one of the pioneers was Dr Kim Rosmo, who blended academia with being a street cop. I had started university as a mathematics major and I found that to be a bit on the boring side. So um, I decided, you know, if I'm really interested in doing something with some excitement, some adventure, I should go into policing. I wanted to work in a big city with a lot of activity, um, but I also wanted to work in a city that gave me the opportunity to do my graduate degree in criminology. And that led me to Vancouver. Kim studied under two professors who were developing what was known as environmental criminology, but Kim wanted to make it work for policing. Their model helped determine um, where crimes might occur based on where an offender lived and it was used in crime prevention. But I was interested in the reverse question. If you knew where the crimes occurred, what might you be able to say about where the offender was based? And that was the genesis of geographic profiling. But understanding the, the search process or the hunting process 
tells us a bit about how best to apply this. So one offender might be um, doing a searches based from home. Another might be following women home from bars. Kim Rosmo became Canada's first police officer to hold a doctorate in criminology. He'd even spent nine months writing a computer code for a software algorithm. Put in the data, find the criminal. I originally was working for my dissertation purpose, the research purposes, on solve cases. You knew the answer. Okay. So that gave me some idea whether or not this was a viable approach. And it looked, uh, the very first case I tried it on was a serial arsonist um, over in the Victoria area. And that was um, encouraging. But while I was doing this, people heard about the research and they began to ask for help on operational cases. In Vancouver, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, um, the British very quickly were involved, the FBI. The Operation Lynx detectives would try anything, including newfangled science, so they called Kim Rosmo in Vancouver and brought him over. But Operation Lynx was only as good as the information it had in its files, and as we've heard, a lot of these had been lost or destroyed. And frankly, there were also historic tensions between the forces. They were trying to put these behind them to find this man. One of the problems was there was some resistance, with three different agencies, right? Three different jurisdictions. And there was some resistance uh, about the theory that they were all connected and... That got resolved by a DNA test, um, and it was still kind of early days for um, DNA um, testing, uh, but that established beyond any doubt that these, these offences were all committed by the same offender. Dr Rosmo's main point of contact was a Leicestershire detective, Brian Warricker, who briefed the policeman stroke geographic profiler. I was aware of five rapes. Um, involving multiple locations because the offender moved the victim. They were in three different cities, though. So you see the problem there. Um, why is it happening in three different cities? If You know, that might lead to three separate uh, anchor points. It might have been one was home, maybe one was somebody he visited on a regular basis in, say, Nottingham, et cetera, et cetera. So I was worried it, that diluted things. But... Um, Brian opened up a big map and it was covered with dots. And I, I was like, what are those? And then he mentioned the credit card and someone using the stolen credit card from a stolen automobile. And then I got very excited because now I had a lot of information to analyze. And so that was, I felt more confident we'd be able to do something quite useful for them. Yes, the credit card, as you'll remember, was used way back in 1983. But the West Yorkshire Police Force still had a record of where it was used to buy alcohol, petrol, a pen and that computer game. Kim Rosmo fed all that data along with the points of abduction and the attack sites into his algorithm. And as the software crunched its numbers, Dr Rosmo was struck at how this new Three Force team was driven to find the attacker even when presented with new science which had barely been tried before in Britain. You run the risk of people not buying into it um, or going through the motions, I never got that sense from the Operation Links team. Um, they were very committed to doing whatever they could and then most impressively using it properly. Um, so they didn't just get the information and file it, they actually based strategies on all the information available to them. And um, this is a simplification, but when they created their 
prioritization scheme, they use the behavioral profile, the geographic profile, the descriptions from the witnesses, um, and they had a plan that made sense. If you look at a map of the Operation Lynx attacks, it covers a huge part of central northern England. Big cities like Leeds, Sheffield, Leicester, Nottingham, Derby and Doncaster. Millions of men lived in this area. How would science refine this down? Give police a priority location, a hook to hang the inquiry on? Soon, Kim Rossmo had an answer for detectives. The idea behind it is that offenders commit crimes not too far from their home, but um, also not too close. For any given case, you don't know if this offender is traveling one and a half miles or three quarters of a mile or what have you. But when you have several crimes, you can calculate a probability function. It gives you a map that we can identify through colors those areas where the offender is most likely based. And it doesn't give you an X that marks the spot. What it does give you is an optimal search strategy. Now, in a criminal investigation, one of the important things is trying to figure out who has committed the crimes, and that is strongly related to you know where they live. We often suffer from information overload in these cases, hundreds and thousands, even tens of thousands of um, uh, information points and suspects. Um, I suspect you've probably seen some of the data on Operation Links. The thing is to figure out how to prioritize it, how to find the needle in the haystack. His software presented a heat map with the most likely location where the attacker would be based. If they concentrated there, they'd be more likely to find the man, he said. The geoprofile focused in the top 3% of the area. So that's that's a pretty good focus. Um, the smaller the focus, the more powerful the tool and, and the more you narrow down that search for the needle in the haystack. Well, it actually comes up with one area in central Leeds, but within that peak area are two, let's call them sub-peaks. So imagine like a mountain with top of the mountain, but there's two peaks. One of them was the Milgarth area and the other was Killing Beck. What the police decided to do with this was to combine uh, witness descriptions of the offender profile characteristics, particularly regarding likely criminal record, and then the geographic profile, and then they began the search through the fingerprint files. There were other things people hunting through the thousands of fingerprints would look for. A man with a Scottish accent, someone who might have had problems driving a car with a manual gear stick. But the particular area of interest, the Milgarth and Killingbeck, the police decided to focus on Milgarth first. And I think that had more to do with the, the, the nature of that neighbourhood. Um, I think they said there was a fair bit of criminal activity there. They thought that was a better um, starting point. And so what they then began to do is they just looked at their villains and see which ones fit the age category and see which ones had the right criminal background. And um, they had a a composite sketch, which was pretty good. Um, That might have factored into it. Uh, They considered whether or not they were connected to Scotland and um, they proceed accordingly. And remember, these are hand searches, so they take some time. Dr. Rosmo didn't underestimate the resources Operation Lynx was deploying. 
there were at least 7,000 fingerprint records in Milgarth and Killingbeck which needed to be compared with the partial one found at the last Leeds rape. So they get through um, pretty much all their people from Milgarth. And I happened to be back in England for a conference. And so Brian Worker took that opportunity to meet up with me um, and his team and just to kind of update stuff. And he had a few other questions about this and that. And during the discussion, he said that they were running out of steam, that they had um, started to lose some of the resources. I mean, remember, there hadn't been a crime in some years. And the original crimes dated back to the early 80s. So, you know, now we're in the later part of the 1990s, 97, I guess. And, um, you know, I was not surprised because it was late to be coming at this. And they had really done a good job. But, you know, there's only so many resources. Um, And anyways, we met on like a Monday or Tuesday. And they were telling me that they had cleared Milgarth and they were looking at killing back. Um, but um, we're starting to wind down. It looked as if the end was in sight for the operation and finding justice for the victims anytime soon. Anyways, Friday of that same week, um, the fingerprint examiner pulls the next card out of the list and it's a match. It was the 19th of March 1998, more than 15 years after his first two offences. It had taken officers nearly a thousand hours sifting through fingerprint records to close in on this one partial print he'd left behind three years earlier in that last attack in Leeds. The attacker's name was Clive Barwell. He was a 41-year-old lorry driver. He lived in Leeds, but was away on a delivery, so armed units waited for him to return. They were unsure if he had a firearm. He was arrested and questioned. Barwell's DNA matched samples left on exhibits, but he continued to deny any involvement. Neighbours were amazed. He was a quiet man, they said. As he was remanded in custody and detectives started to build the case against him, Kim Rosmo realised how his geographic profile analysis had worked. He lived in Killingbeck. The other area was Milgarth. Turned out in the Milgarth area his, was where his mother lived. We regularly visited, so make of that what you will. He was, I, I think, experienced. He was devious. Um, he was violent. Anne Davis was exactly right with her analysis Barwell had no prior convictions for sex attacks, but his 25-year criminal record had, as she suggested, a history of violence and theft. Barwell also had long periods in prison. His fingerprints were on record after he'd been caught robbing security vans with a shotgun. I'm looking at one photo here showing um, mugshots of him going back to 73. And there's something like eight different mugshots here. So he was active, but he just didn't commit a serious crime that would have gotten his DNA into the system um, in any of the relevant time periods. He'd spent six years inside from 1989 to 1995. But for some of the later time, he'd been in a Category D prison 
During a four-day visit to his sick father, he'd attacked one of the women in Leeds. The attack in Nottingham happened when he was out on day release. If the police had come at this from another direction, they might have missed him completely. Because during one of the rapes, he was listed as being in custody. So that would have excluded him. Um, But it was a failure to keep proper records. He had been given a a weekend pass or something like that. He was out and about and no record of it. And then when you look at it later, you go, yeah, he's in custody. Um, But fortunately, that's not how they got to him. So why did it take so long for police to catch him? What about DNA? Well, that had only started the year before Barwell's armed robbery sentence. He'd never given his DNA. He wasn't on the database. Serving prisoners weren't asked to give DNA samples in retrospect. They would have got to him quicker if that were in place. What about the Scottish accent and the gear stick? Detectives discovered these were both devious ploys to throw them off scent. It later turned out he had never been in Scotland. Um, It also turned out he was a long-distance truck driver, so he had no trouble with the gears. He was just putting on these shows so that the victims would tell the police um, and it would misdirect the investigation. But I think his mother was Scottish, so he had familiarity, I think. So he had sort of, you know, familiarity with the accent. But yes, he was very aware, very aware of... His, that means, that shows him very aware of the police, doesn't it? Which puts him... Which you're, when you're that aware of the police, that, that not only points to a, um, an extensive experience of the police, it points to a custodial sentence, that much experience. Police were finding out more about Barwell. He was a father of four who had been divorced and was living with his partner in Leeds. He was a long-distance truck driver and spent time working in Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands and France. Were there more victims abroad, they asked? And was he responsible for other attacks in Britain? Thames Valley Police looked at links with the murder of Shaney Warren in 1987. The 26-year-old was found bound and gagged in a lake in Buckinghamshire. The modus operandi seemed so similar. In the end, this charge was not proceeded. A six-week trial was scheduled in October 1999 at Teesside Crown Court. But as proceedings began, Barwell switched his plea. He now admitted 11 offences, including three rapes, one attempted murder and four kidnappings. Some of the other planned charges were left on file, which means they could be retried in the future. The court heard of the long-term impact on his victims. His first from Bradford in 1982 had told the police she thought... This is it. He's going to kill me. She was still on antidepressants and suffered panic attacks 16 years later. His second victim, the mother thrown into the canal, still suffered mentally from the trauma. As for the survivor whose eyes were glued together, the barrister said that she locked all the doors and windows in her home. Trips out terrified her. Even a walk to the postbox was a major ordeal. Barwell was given eight life sentences. As this episode is published, he remains in prison. He has not been charged with any further offences since he was jailed. In 2022, another man, Donald Robertson, was convicted of Shaney Warren's murder in Buckinghamshire in 1987. One detective at the time of Barwell's sentencing described it as a miracle that he hadn't killed any of his victims. Today, 
Nearly a quarter of a century after Barwell went to jail, experts say they were pleased their techniques helped, but they did not solve the case. And people say sometimes, well, how many cases have you solved with this? And I said, well, I've arrested lots of bad guys in my policing career, but this does not solve cases. What solves the cases is confession, physical evidence, or a witness. And it's the detective that solves the case. So all I'm trying to do is provide one useful tool that they can employ. And so if we were, unlike what we see in TV or movies, what solved this was, first of all, witnesses and victims coming forward, um, good police work. None of this is as good as forensic science. It is a help in some cases sometimes. And links was almost an unusual one where the geographic profiling and a very simple um, sort of behavioral profile enabled the police to search the database and successfully identify the offender. After Operation Lynx, Anne Davis became Head of Crime Analysis at the Metropolitan Police Service, where she built and managed analytic services. She advised rape inquiries and trained detectives and analysts. She retired in 2001. Kim Rosmo was promoted to become a detective inspector. His work helped to catch the Canadian serial killer Robert Picton in 2002. He then became the Director of Research at the Police Foundation in Washington, D.C. and is now the Endowed Chair in Criminology at the University of Texas. If you want to hear an interview with Kim about the thought and science behind geographic profiling, subscribe at robertmurphy.substack.com. It includes clips like these. We didn't have any bodies. We didn't have a crime location. We just had a lot of women who had gone missing. So I did two things. Um, just like an epidemiologist would do, I tried to determine, was this just random or was there something happening? I applied the data and said, we've got like 28 missing people that are way past due, meaning something has happened to them. And any explanation has to say, why now and not before? Why in Vancouver and not in um, other Western Canadian cities? Why women not and no men? And then why are we not finding any bodies? And the only thing that could explain all that, to my mind, was a, a serial killer. Um, but there was a lot of pushback against that idea. You can establish linkages, then you can apply it. You can apply it to all sorts of things. Arson, um, burglary, uh, kidnapping. It's been used um, in military operations in Afghanistan. It's um, been used to identify sources for some um, work in epidemiology, um, like cholera outbreaks. Some people have applied it to piracy from the um, 1600s, um, pirate attacks, and then where were the pirate ships uh, harboring themselves. I've got shark hunting written down here as well. Is that true? Yes. Just subscribe at robertmurphy.substack.com. There, you can watch video clips, see visuals from the case, and read more about this and many of the other inquiries in the podcast series. Behind the Crimes is written, presented, and produced by me, Robert Murphy. Thank you.